0: where we bring you independent voices and civil dialogue across the political divide, the gaping sometimes political divide. Uh, I'm Ed Fallon, I'm your host, and we're coming to you from the heart of America's heartland, that would be Des Moines, Iowa. Now, if you value what we do, folks, uh, we could sure use your support. Uh, Visit the donations page on the Fallon Forum website, become a monthly donor if you can, or if you own a small business or you know, are associated with a nonprofit, uh, a nonprofit doing good work, let me clarify, I also consider becoming a sponsor. And speaking of sponsors, uh, thanks to Gateway Marketing Cafe. That's Des Moines' locally owned grocery and specialty food store. Gateway's Cafe is open for dine in, carry out, and delivery service seven days a week. Check out Gateway's catering and floral services as well. And also, note that Gateway is gearing up for its local produce season. That's Gateway Marketing Cafe. Thanks also to psychiatrist Dr. David Drake. Wherever you live in Iowa, Dr. Drake can help through the convenience and privacy of televideo counseling offered on a self-pay basis. Contact DavidDrakeFamilyPsychiatry.com. With me today, we're focusing today strictly on the uh, situation in Ukraine and relevant, you know, related foreign policy topics. With me in the studio, uh, Jeffrey Weiss, a professor at uh, Des Moines Area Community College. Jeffrey, welcome to the phone.
1: Yeah, thank you, Ed. Uh,
0: at some point, we're going to be bringing in Kathleen McQuill, and she's the director of the uh, Catholic Peace Ministry. But, Jeffrey, let's start with you. Um, yeah, it's so hard to know where to start to talk about this. Um, today, we're recording this program, is Victory Day in Russia, which, of course, used to be the day that Russia remembered its victory, if you can call it a victory where you lose, what, 20 million people, mm-hmm. over uh, Nazi Germany. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then kind of became a day of peace, uh,
1: recognizing the importance of peace. Mm-hmm. I mean, is that a fair uh, description? Yeah, I I mean, I think that this day is important uh, for for many reasons, but. One of those reasons is the the reality that the when we think of the Russian Federation today, I think where we have to start is this is a country that three times in the last 100 years has suffered uh, major cataclysms. Um, a couple of times the state has collapsed: uh, the Bolshevik Revolution in 1917, and of course the disintegration of the the Soviet Empire in in 1990. And so, uh, you know, to the late Stephen Cohen, who was a Russian expert from Princeton, talks about how you really can't understand the modern-day Russian Federation unless you understand uh, this history, or even the rise of, of of Vladimir Putin. And so, yeah, it's 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 a significant day. The what Cohen used to describe as the the myth makers of Hollywood, or I tend to call it Holly Weird. <laughs> it, it, in their commemorations and their, their movies related to World War II, you know, what is, what is left out is what, what everybody knows is that the, uh, the Soviets uh, defeated the uh, Germans uh, in Europe. Of course, the United States contributed to the win in the Pacific. And when you think about a death total of 25 to 27, 28 million people, you know.
0: That's just in, just in the U- or the time Russia. Uh,
1: yeah, and that it? would be Soviets. Yeah, within the former Soviet Union. Um, I mean, Cohen describes it when he studied it as a village of 118-year-olds go off to war and maybe uh, 12 of them return. And, wow. you know, and so... You know, this is important for, for understanding the context of what has taken place between Russia and Ukraine, because, um, and even Pope Francis has weighed in on this, uh, NATO's encirclement of, of the Russian Federation recently, uh, and, you know, for the first time in, in, in Russia's history since 1941, um, Western, their Western flank uh, was filled with uh, Western artillery um, the, the entire might of the Cold War alliance was built right up to Russia's border, which a 10-year-old would understand that that could be problematic. Uh, and many people understand that, that it was. Um, having said all that, I always have to say that the invasion of Ukraine, Ukraine is a sovereign state according to the United Nations Charter. This is an unlawful use of force. Um, and all the rules of war apply yeah, so <laughs> to saying, the Russian Federation. Yeah. So, but, but the his, the history here is very important,
0: right? So, uh, what uh, what Russia mm-hmm. has done in the Ukraine? I mean, you would there, 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 there are a few, there are a few, but very few dissenting voices in the U.S. But you would concur that Russia's invasion of Ukraine is wrong. But it's, but, it's but, not but only it, wrong, but, but, yeah, but well, it's an unlawful use yes. of use of force. But you're but, but you're also pointing out that uh, that the Continued and kind of illogical expansion of NATO right up to Russia's borders is problematic in terms of um, in terms of uh, you know making it easier for Vladimir Putin to to uh, justify that invasion.
1: Well, I mean, unfortunately, Putin's popularity is higher than it's ever been in Russia today. It's over eighty percent. In fact. The last time it was this high is, is that Crimea in two thousand fourteen.
0: Is that a state sanction? No, poll? these are no Pew okay. and Gallup;
1: these are international polls, and mm. it's it's not surprising. I mean, when when the United States leaders um, invade and occupy countries, of, oftentimes, sometimes hmm. in violation of the United Nations Charter, like March two thousand three invasion of Iraq, we, we sometimes forget yeah. that you know the the popularity generally uh, soars for leaders. Probably not to eighty uh, percent though. No. And, you know, you know, polls show that a majority of of people in the Russian Federation look favorably on the former Soviet Union. Uh, many of them feel as if the loss of these 15 republics was was a grave national error. Mm-hmm. You know, Mikhail Gorbachev is not seen as as a popular leader, I would say, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, because he was he was a, he was a, a Democratic reform minded leader, yeah. whereas um uh, Yeltsin and Putin coming right in his footsteps are, are really men of power, <laughs> rather than men of uh, peace, of, maybe. Uh, yeah, yeah, of peace or yeah. men of reform or or, or more democratically yeah. minded. When well, you um, mentioned
0: you mentioned uh, the, uh, Pope uh, Francis and his position on NATO, and I thought that was interesting. I'd li- I'd like at this point to bring uh, Kathleen McQuillan into the conversation. Kathleen's on the phone with us. She is the uh, director of the Catholic Peace Ministry. Uh, Kathleen, first um, a bunch more, you know, questions for you. But first, the perspective on the Pope's comments about NATO relevant to the invasion of Ukraine.
2: Yeah, I I, I was very pleased to see that uh, coming from, you know, working for the Catholic Peace Ministry and to see the Pope speak out and give some words that I think academics, uh, international scholars like John Mearsheimer, and um, Oh, you know, peace groups have been saying for a long time we should be looking at the role of NATO now for him to say it. And he said it very cautiously because he's clearly hoping to be able to play a role in peacemaking and bringing the sides together. So his language was, um, I'd say, delicate, but important. It was there may be a role in this conflict in uh, the NATO's expansion. Um, and so it raises the question. I hope it raises a question for people around the world. Uh, so we feel good about that. And, and I think there's other voices beginning to get some airtime um, that we need to be attentive to.
0: And, and now if, Kathleen, we're, we're, we're also seeing, of course, Finland and Sweden talking about wanting yep. to join NATO. Is that kind yep. of the opposite direction than, than, uh, the Pope and a lot of us would want to see NATO go?
2: Well, it would seem to me it is, but it also seems to me that it may now make sense for those two countries since, you know, they're seeing this violence taking place right now and the potential for greater violence if NATO expands its role or if the United States expands its role, including by continuing to send more and more weapons um, to face
0: the Russians. So I'm, I'm confused. And maybe, Jeffrey, you jump in as well. It seems to me like if uh, if NATO were to expand to include Sweden, and especially Finland, right on Russia's western border, that, that would be a huge provocation.
1: Yeah, I I hope that both Sweden and Finland do not join NATO. Um, the, I mean, NATO isn't a raise-your-hand-we-want-to-be-part-of-NATO club. It's only... Finland isn't, you mean? Well, NATO isn't. Oh, NATO! NATO I gotcha. Got yeah, you. it isn't. This is if countries can raise their hand and say, "We, you know, we want to be part of NATO." And all the countries in NATO would need to bring those countries in because they would feel that it would enhance their security. So obviously, the United States and other countries do not think that Russia is a threat to Sweden to Finland. Um, otherwise, they wouldn't be inviting them into NATO. <laughs> in this, in this similar vein, is why they didn't bring Ukraine into NATO ever. But what the United States did, in fact, is rather than Ukraine join NATO, NATO started joining Ukraine. In other words, right. during the Trump administration, the weapons that were sold. And the same thing you have with the $11 million billion of weapons that were sold to Poland. So for the first time, Russia had artillery that could hit St. Petersburg that was in Poland, that was given by the United States because... You know, so th- so think. I mean, it's, Na- like,
0: NATO has artillery that could hit. CMP
1: absolutely. Yeah. So so th- I mean, these aren't even missiles. This artillery. Now, so think of what would happen if Russia put weapons in Cuba, oh, or or no, if Russia put or now threatened to
0: like back in the sixties under the Kennedy administration. Absolutely. Right or you know, we know what happened. Well, <laughs> and what's
1: <laughs> also interesting about this is that a couple of months ago. Russia publicly said they were interested in putting military infrastructure in Venezuela or Cuba. And the United States immediately reacted and used the word bluster. Right. You know, this is just bluster. And then threatened Russia, saying, if you do this, we will act decisively. Right. So uh, to me, all so, that, I mean,
0: all, it's all the more reason why... Uh, Sweden, and especially Finland, joining NATO would be a really, really bad call. And you're, you're saying not so much, Jeffrey. Do I understand you correctly? Uh,
1: it, it would be, you know, th- the question that we all, we all kind of forget history is when the Warsaw Pact ended in 1990, what is the purpose of NATO? If you have a military alliance, which was described as to keep the Americans in, to keep the Germans down, and to keep the Russians out, you no longer have a former Soviet Union. So there's so many people who negotiated the fall of the Soviet Union, George Kennan and others, who when NATO wanted to expand, Kennan said this would be the most fateful error of United States foreign policy. And I think Kennan was okay. prophetic because now we have a situation where we're closer to nuclear war yeah. than so, ever.
0: So to be clear, you're not, you're not advocating for an expansion of NATO.
1: I I am not I'm not I don't work in the State Department or anything but what I what I would say is that if we are honest about it, all of us even still to this day have to ask ourselves what is the purpose right. of NATO There okay. is no more no more Soviet Union right So Kathleen you're, other you're... than to sell, United States weapons because every or country Europe, that joins oil. NATO, yeah, every <laughs> country that joins NATO has to modernize their weapons, and that means so, Lockheed Martin and and all those. So, companies so Kathleen, your your take, uh,
0: your take on the Finland, Sweden possibility of joining NATO discussion.
2: Well, I can see why the people inside Finland and Sweden may be interested. Um, I don't think it's a benefit to the world. But I can see with the current conflict, um, they could see that Ukraine wasn't part of NATO, and they were attacked. And, you know, Jeffrey, I think, has well stated, some of the reasons behind that, uh, what what were Russia's security concerns. But I can see sort of, uh, maybe a knee jerk reaction from Sweden and Finland would be oh my god we've got to get in NATO to get protected so I'm not saying that's good policy and I as as Jeffrey pointed out it's not just up to um, Sweden and Finland but to the whole of NATO and I don't know where NATO would go with that right now um yeah, and I, the, I agree. The effort should be to be getting rid of right. NATO, but that's going to be a way down the road.
0: Yeah, and uh, you know the uh, it, it seems like uh, the U.S. media, the mainstream media, is very, very hesitant to to uh, blame any of this on NATO. I mean, again, I I, I I don't think any of us would want to exonerate Vladimir Putin from extreme unlawful wrongdoing, but to confront the reality that NATO's expansion has has to some extent enabled and encouraged that. Um, here's a, a quote from a, a story in the Guardian this week. Um, uh, P- uh, Putin suggested that Russia was forced into the war by NATO and pledged to provide aid for the families of soldiers who had died in what the Kremlin is calling a special operation. Again, you know, I, I, you know, it's, it's the same saying that his hand was forced by NATO, I think, it is an extreme exaggeration, but. I, I think it, I think it's a reality that that um, that the that the U.S. media and U.S. politicians seem to want to ignore. But okay, let's say let's say let's say that we our argument wins the day on this, Kathleen and Jeffrey. Jeffrey, what happens next? Uh, how does NATO go from being this growing alliance of states to dissolving, or to becoming some kind of force that is actually, you know, maybe? Maybe logical. I mean, again, it's the North Atlantic Treaty Organization. Ukraine, I believe, is about fifteen hundred miles from the from the Atlantic. <laughs> so, yeah. I mean, does it dissolve completely? Does it kind of uh, revert to a smaller, uh, more Atlantic-focused uh, entity? Or what do you what do you see happening there? I mean, Jeffrey I th- and then I, Kathleen. I
1: think the much larger question is: In 1990, James Baker told Mikhail Gorbachev, "Not one inch eastward. That NATO would not expand." with the reunification of Germany. That was the deal that was made. So we broke our word, just like we broke our word, meaning the United States uh, with Iran, the nuclear deal. And so uh, in terms of the future, there has to be what Pope Francis says, Europe has to breathe with two lungs. Meaning it has to be Europe and it has to be Russia. Russia's not going anywhere. There were many opportunities the last 30 years that Stephen Cohen and others wrote about in his book, Soviet Fates and Lost Alternatives, for bringing in Russia to some form of collective security. Now, it might be too late now because of the events that have actually Mm. unfolded. And, you know, Macron and uh, the leader of the free world, Olaf Scholz, the prime minister of Germany. um, Well, it was Merkel. I see what you did there. It was Merkel for, what, 15 (laughs) years, and now it's Olaf Scholz, the leader of the free world. But... They, in fact, you know, their rhetoric lately is, is I don't know, sad. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, uh, un- okay. similar with the rhetoric of the president of the United States, it's okay. sad.
0: Kathleen, before we run to a quick break here, short break, your take on what NATO should look like if, for some reason, our logic prevails and NATO, the role of and composition of NATO is revisited. What should it look well-
2: like? Yeah, that's really looking down the road. I I guess (laughs) I'd struggle to come up with what NATO should look like. Maybe it should just be gone. Do we need a sort of bulwark against Russia? Should we find a way that, you know, Russia has asked to be part of the European Union. I'm not sure how valuable that would be or or what that would look like. But I'm not sure that the military... um, you know, connection needs to be the direction we need to look at. Yeah. So it might be that NATO is simply gone and we find other ways of dealing um, with with what used to be yeah. or what, what they hoped to become the Soviet Union, but it's not. And so it's just Russia. The, and now yeah. how do we look at that right. and work with yeah. them? And, and that's, I, that's... I would... I would just say I wanted to touch on the media, but maybe you, you let,
0: yeah Yeah, let's, let's talk, that, talk about that when we come back. I, got, I, got, I also want to talk about comments by a U.S. Senate candidate that uh, caused some concern to me, and maybe to you as well. Um, but again, yeah, that, that'd be my preference. I think, I think NATO and these kinds of alliances make no sense in the modern world. That's why we've got the United Nations. Hey, folks, this is Ed Fallon, uh, Jeffrey Weiss and Kathleen McQuillan joining me for a focused conversation about Ukraine today. Uh, We'll be back in just a a brief minute after a short break. Gateway Marketing Cafe is Des Moines locally owned grocery and specialty food store, centrally located at ML King Parkway and Woodland Ave. Enjoy chef-crafted prepared foods, artisan baked goods, organic produce, hand-cut meats, local and international cheeses, wines, and craft beer. Gateway's Cafe is open for dine-in, carry-out, and delivery service seven days a week. Stop by or visit gatewaymarket.com for more details. Gateway Market, good food, great community.
3: You're responsible for a lot, and it's easy to become overwhelmed, to feel helpless, even hopeless. What's not so easy is finding your way back to feeling and functioning better. Psychiatrist, Dr. David Drake, helps individuals and couples throughout Iowa with the convenience and privacy of televideo counseling. Dr. Drake also prescribes medication when needed and his services are offered on a self-pay basis. If you need help, don't delay. Contact Dr. Drake at daviddrakefamilypsychiatry.com.
0: Welcome back to the Fallon Forum. You know, at a time when big corporations control most of the media, our niche is more important than ever. Please support what we do. Go to the Fallon Forum website, donate, even better, become a monthly sponsor. And speaking of sponsors, thanks to Western Optometry located in Des Moines East Village. Dr. Joel Westrom and his staff are fluent in English and Spanish. The clinic is open Monday through Friday from 9 a.m. until 5 p.m. and on Saturdays by appointment. That's Westrom Optometry. All right, so, uh, Again, with me today, uh, Jeffrey Weiss, uh, a a professor at Des Moines Area Community College, and Kathleen McQuillan, the director of the Catholic Peace Ministry. I want to I want to ask again. I want to talk about the media too, uh, Kathleen. But first, let's talk about politicians. Uh, (laughs) There seems to be a fairly united front uh, on what to do in response to Ukraine, uh, with some Fox News voices uh, kind of providing an interesting counterpoint. But uh, here in Iowa, we have a very competitive Democratic Senate primary. Uh, three candidates running to take on presumably Charles Grassley, who uh, is the incumbent senator. Of course, uh, he has a, an opponent as well, who that's probably not going to go well for the opponent, given Grassley's popularity. But um, in the recent debate, uh, one of the uh, three candidates, um, um, Franken, a former naval uh, Navy admiral, um, he uh, he uh, he was uh, talking about the challenge of being, quote, being the world's broad-shouldered democracy, which I thought was an interesting description of the U.S. He uh, advocated for sending troops to Ukraine if Russia utilizes a nuclear weapon. And his quote, that's a red line. We must step forward. We cannot let the use of weapons of mass destruction against a large population and a democracy ever be used and go without retort. Kathleen, Jeffrey, who would like to start by taking a crack at that?
1: Well, I... I mean, I think that we should avoid a nuclear war. Do <laughs> you think? <laughs> and I think that all of the escalation that is coming from the current administration, et cetera, needs to be questioned. What we need is a ceasefire, and we need diplomacy. If you listen to Zelensky speak, he's quite rational when he speaks about what a diplomacy diplomatic solution would look like, um, neutrality. Uh, the independence of Ukraine, et cetera. I mean, those are some of the things. He's smart enough to say, let's keep Crimea. Let's kick that can down the road because mm-hmm. he knows that, I think he knows in his heart that Russia will never give up Crimea because of its that's their, stu- only, their yeah. only warm water port. Right, Russia right. has fought wars for 400 years. This port of Sevastopol is Pearl Harbor on steroids or Pearl Harbor times 100. And so it's simply not going to happen. And so this is what our leaders should be. You know, when our leaders speak about weakening Russia, it sounds to me a little bit like weakening the Soviet Union in the 1980s, which was sort of the Americans will fight to the last Afghan. (laughs) And so I hope that now the Americans are not going to fight to the last Ukrainian because Mm -hmm. the reality is... The first, the only question we should be asking is how do we protect the civilians in Ukraine and how do we end this war? Yeah. And I'm not sure that our current policy is is going to end the war. In fact, mm-hmm. my fear is that our strategy is not to end the war, but to fight. It could be to fight to the last Ukrainian, to, well, to quote a, a ambassador, U.S. ambassador, he's, so he's, who, who, who is retired, by the way.
0: Right. Okay. So the... um, <laughs> But the... There's a real risk of this escalating into some kind of a nuclear exchange, either a limited exchange, which is horrific enough, Absolutely. or a global exchange, yep. which is well, basically game over. Yep. Um, you know, so I, it, it troubles me when you've got a candidate who basically says, if a if a nuclear device is used, then that's a red line. We don't, you know, I, I don't know what I don't. I actually called the can, the uh, Franken uh, uh, campaign headquarters, to try to get some clarity on that. Uh, I don't know how far he or anyone else, either a candidate or elected official in Congress or the Biden administration is willing to go, but that really troubles me. Uh, Kathleen, am I overreacting? I,
2: I, I, I just totally agree with you. I think even before we get to that point about the red line, the whole concept of being the world's broad shouldered democracy, that <laughs> right. sort of claim for empire or hegemony all of that is very concerning, and I hear that from the admiral. And I heard that also from uh, Mr. Hurst in a in a less clear way. Maybe I went to see Franken at an event in Indianola, and a question came up about Ukraine, and he absolutely put it totally on Putin. There wasn't any look at any steps that could have been taken differently to help us move in a different direction and if we don't understand how we got here we're not going to avoid the next one so I think it's really critical that one he looked back at that and understand there were steps that could have been taken we could have lived up to our treaty agreements Um, we could have respected the serious uh, security concerns the legitimate Security concerns by Russia, mm-hmm. but then when we want to take it to uh, nukes, and that's a red line. And and I agree. I had a conversation with somebody about this last night. He wasn't real clear what that meant, other than to say it's a red line. So what do we do with a red line? Um, I think he needs to be pushed on that. What does he specifically think needs to be done if nukes are introduced?
1: Right.
0: Okay. So uh, and I. I we could talk a lot more about that. And I think I think if anything the media has underplayed the the uh, the how close we are to that risk. I mean we've you know the, the risk of, the risk of a nuclear war has never been off the table. Let's be clear about that. I mean that was the that was the concern that brought me into public work back in the mid uh, early nineteen yeah. eighties. Uh, and although public concern has declined the real risk has not declined at all. And now we see this, um, I mean, you could almost, I, th- I think the U.S. is really at war with Russia, I would say. Uh, yeah. I'd say it's, its, it's uh, and again, like Jeffrey said, uh, we're willing to fight that war until the last Ukrainian. But, right. Um, right. you know, it could go, if, if the escalation continues, if, um, if Putin's back is against the wall, uh, who knows what might happen. But um, to start talking in terms of red lines and... Um, the world's broad-shouldered democracy, those, those, are, those are inflammatory, uh, that's inflammatory language. But let's talk about the, me- the media. Uh, Jeffrey, um, it seems to me, and I read pretty broadly, uh, I, I read lots of stuff, and my take is the mainstream media, public radio included, New York Times included, even The Guardian, uh, are, are somewhat lopsided in their take on this, and they don't want to confront the reality that the uh, U.S. and and, and European foreign policy decisions uh, ha- have kind of helped contribute to this moment and if those don't change we might continue to see more such moments and to our to our peril
1: mm-hmm. yeah well it's it's interesting for me to see National public Radio discover the United Nations Charter <laughs> and to discover <laughs> the question of illegal unlawful war and where the invasion of Iraq in March of 2000- three was exactly the same dynamic. Um, I guess, yeah, I mean, (laughs) you know, and and, and we we haven't ever heard those words, not only from public radio, but even from our so-called intellectual class, the professors, the other people that come to speak. You know, when they refer to this as an unlawful war, you don't also hear them say, like the United States invasion of Iraq, like the United States invasion of Panama. you know it, it, you know i hope that the russia is not in the ukraine for 28 years as the combined years that we were in in afghanistan and iraq i also hope that you know we have real good grounds for diplomacy um, but yeah i'm not um, I, I think national public radio has gotten a little bit better they're they're getting some voices on there that are talking about this history a little bit more as a way of saying, how do we prevent this in the future? Last thing I'll say is I, I think it's problematic if media portrays a world leader as being insane because the, you don't negotiate with somebody who's insane.
0: No, you institutionalize them. Uh, yes. <laughs> if you it, can catch them. And
1: if you don't have the capacity to do that, the war never ends. And so, uh, you know, I think, you know, it, it would be helpful. (laughs) You know, it would be helpful if there were some more sober voices who would point towards diplomacy and ceasefire rather than total escalation. Because at least from my perspective, the most important question we should be asking is what's best for the Ukrainians. They're the biggest victims in all this. Mm. And therefore, ceasefire and diplomacy is going to take, I think, something more than escalation. So from, from the Westerns? Kathleen
0: Kathleen, your take on the mainstream media's uh, role in fueling yeah. this fire. Well,
2: um, you know, early on, and I wrote a letter to the editor about this, which didn't get published, but um, I, I was encouraged by seeing so many people on the street calling for diplomacy and no war and so forth. However, that turned pretty quickly to be an anti-Russian. And that was very concerning to me because the first message was we need diplomacy. And I think that has a whole lot to do. Why I became anti-Russian was the failure of the media to give any context. And it's, it just became increasingly disturbing. The tone we're hearing even now is it's not like a lot of education has been done or a lot of, um, you know, uh, media reports or op-eds, uh, ca- trying to give context. And I, I we had a couple events, um, two online with Jeffrey trying to do exactly that. And then one in person trying to give people context and background. I want to throw one other thing out here because the other thing that struck me about this, and that was the point really of my letter to the editor was, wow, why are we so concerned about Ukraine? Why is the U.S. government, why is the public so concerned about Ukraine and so ignorant and ignoring of the war in Yemen being waged by Saudi Arabia. And and I raise that because that's also a media. Why are we covering, and I asked, why aren't we seeing pictures of Yemenis in hospitals where they can't get any um, medical support because of the blockade instituted by Saudi Arabia, supported by the United States? Why aren't we seeing bleeding people on the streets in saudi arabia when the bombs falling them Mm. on them are made in the usa
0: so so your question what is the answer so
2: the question well is this about race a lot of people say it's about race because ukrainians look like us or it's because the bombs being made are made in the usa and whoever the usa supports we're going to blindly support so i think that's probably like russia we've learned forever that russia is an enemy
0: right and the other the other part of this is uh the war, the the conflict in Ukraine, is perhaps much more quote interesting because it involves our primary nuclear armed ally or ally uh, enemy. Um,
1: yeah. <laughs> you know,
0: I mean, I think maybe all those all those elements play into it. Jeffrey, what do you think is? Uh,
1: yeah, yeah. I mean, I think a lot of those elements um, play into it. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's I mean Noam Chomsky years ago in manufacturing consent him and Edward Herman came up with the worthy and unworthy victims. So the Kashmiris, the Palestinians, the Yemenis um, are the unworthy victims. Yeah, right. And then, Incredible. you know, we can give the list of, 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 of the worthy victims. It, and really the reality is they're all victims. And, but I think I'll quote Noam Chomsky by saying, you know, we should, you know, I think it's an ethical tenet that we should be most concerned about the consequences of our own behavior. So yeah. we' we're, if we're supporting the the most significant humanitarian disaster in the world in Yemen and we're supporting the suffering of the Yemenis or the ongoing sort of gradual um, removal of, of, of Palestinians mm-hmm. off of you know off of their land in violation of the United Nations Charter, <laughs> security council resolutions etc, right. we should be having more Uh, Reporting on that because that is what we're most uh, most responsible for. I think that. But I mean, it's is and it's again.
0: You mentioned Yemen, uh, Kathleen, but it's not just Yemen and Ukraine, Myanmar, Mm -hmm. uh, multiple countries in Africa, uh, countries in Central America, where the destabilization that we've fostered um, for for decades, and you know, couple that with uh, you know, homegrown corruption and climate change, and you've got some real disasters uh, hitting some of the Central American nations. Um, but those, you know, it just seems like our mainstream media has the capacity for one or two focal conversations. For a couple of years now, it's been COVID. For the past couple, three months, it's been Ukraine and COVID. Uh, and it just seems like they're only capable of doing that. And that baffles me. I would, I would like to believe that most audiences, especially maybe an NPR audience, would be more in, would be able to manage other conversations, would be able to think critically. About what's happening in some of these other hot spots around the world, and again, where all victims matter. Where uh, where just because yeah. we've got a U.S. connection to Saudi Arabia and the oppression of the people in Yemen, that doesn't mean we shouldn't focus on what's going on there and try to try to figure out how to respond to it.
2: Mm-hmm. Well, that's absolutely true, and um, I think the point Jeffrey made is really good. Where we and we do have responsibility in many areas of conflict, but. Where there we have a direct uh, responsibility, when we have a very direct role, uh, then we're called even more to be attentive and be responsive, and call out the United States when it needs to be called out instead of following wherever they take us. So that's why I think both um, Yemen, Palestine—I'm sure there's many others where the U.S. direct role is so critical, but. I mean, 335,000 people have already died in Yemen in this seven-year war, and we can't, mm. you know, come up with enough media attention to even make this visible. Right. Millions are in threat of starving because of the um, uh, blockade imposed. Now, there's a there's a um, tentative uh, break in the hostilities right now. There's work by the Friends Committee on National Legislation to push the United States to make that a more permanent uh, ceasefire. And so that's something that there's an action that we can be doing. So that's something else we're trying to lift up and give more attention to. Uh,
0: Kathleen McQuillan with me today, folks, and Jeffrey Weiss. Uh, We're talking about Ukraine and US foreign policy. Um, This is Ed Fallon. We've got to take a really short break and we'll be right back with more conversation on the Fallon Forum. Groovy Goods is your Des Moines one-stop hippie shop. Located near Drake University, we are more than just a store. Groovy Goods is about community. We're a tribe brought together by peace, love, and rock and roll. You will be greeted by friendly staff, the smell of incense, the vibration of healing stones and crystals, the vibrant colors of clothing and tapestries, and an extensive herbal apothecary and metaphysical products. At Groovy Goods, everyone is welcome and no one is judged. Check us out online, groovy-goods.com, or stop in at the corner of 23rd and University in Des Moines. At Westrom Optometry, Dr. Joel Westrom and his team provide a variety of services, including comprehensive eye exams, children's eye exams, and LASIK co-management. Whether strictly utilitarian or a fashion statement, your comfort and vision are Westrom's primary concern. Dr. Westrom and his staff will work closely with you to determine the best solution for your eyes, prescription and lifestyle. Services are provided in English and Spanish and the clinic is open Monday through Friday from 9 a.m. till 5 p.m. and on Saturdays by appointment. That's Westrom Optometry located in Des Moines East Village. Welcome back to the Fallon Forum. Remember, you can support this alternative to the shock jocks by becoming a monthly donor or a business sponsor. Check out the Fallon Forum website for details. Thanks to our sponsors, including Architecture by Synthesis, adamantly and actively supporting the mission of the Fallon Forum and community radio stations. Owner Mark Clipsham knows we have to build better health for people and the planet, and the services he provides are committed to that goal. That's Architecture by Synthesis. All right. Welcome back to the program uh, again, Jeffrey Weiss, uh, professor at Des Moines Area Community College. With me also, Kathleen McQuillan, the director of the Catholic Peace Ministry. So, you know what? You've got, you've got the press comparing Putin to Hitler. Um, you've got uh, you've got, and now we have, and now we have. You know, U.S. support for Ukraine was originally kind of very clandestine, very quiet. Um, but now it's pretty open. I mean, the, the U.S. is actually taking credit for helping to uh, provide the assistance needed to shoot down, uh, to, to blow up uh, what that, the, um, the big ship, the, uh, what's it called, the Moskva. Yeah, and, and also, yeah, you know, admitting U.S. involvement in attacks on Russian generals. Uh, you know, and there, here's, uh, here's a quote from Evelyn Farkas. She's a former Pentagon official. Quote, we will give them, meaning Ukraine, everything they need to win. And we're not afraid of Vladimir Putin's reaction to that. We won't be self-deterred. That to me is frightening rhetoric.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think I think we are closer to a nuclear war than probably the closest to a nuclear war since the Cuban Missile Crisis in the early 1960s. And that should be concerning to us. Um, I think the real sober-minded people, the George Kennans, Matlock, some of these ambassadors, even
0: Friedman, maybe Thomas Friedman.
1: Well, Friedman, you know, um, you know, for the New York Times. But you know, the people who negotiated the end of the Cold War in the 1990s—they warned all of this, you know, with with you know the most fateful heir of the United States. I hope they're wrong. (laughs) I hope this doesn't end up being the most fateful heir. But, but this automatic dramatic military escalation. So, okay. So if it's working, so we have a stalemate, then it's time for negotiation and ceasefire and diplomacy. It has to be now. And so that's really what I wish the leaders of our country were were focusing on rather than making statements like weakening Russia, which Plays right into United Russia, the the one-party state. I mean, forever they've been saying this is a war against Russia. We are defending our lands against Western aggression, and then you hear Western leaders say we are doing this to weaken Russia. And so Putin and the leaders of yeah. United Russia sound prophetic, and then taking and, and, crit- and they rally around yeah. United Russia. And like I said, his approval rating is over eighty percent right now. Mm. So you know, I don't know. I, I guess I just, I'm just, I'm lost for words. I, I don't know if our country anymore has any sense of history. I think it could be that these, what I call weapons of mass distraction, the <laughs> internet and the cell phones, probably two of the worst <laughs> inventions in all of human history, um, may be just making us a country that doesn't Understand history anymore? We don't understand there was well, a Soviet the Soviet Union. The,
0: in, the internet and cell phones aren't a uniquely American phenomenon; they're global. Absolutely. Yeah. But Kathleen, your take yeah. on, on the on on, um, on on U.S. hubris and and the and the openly, you know, accepting responsibility for helping to enable these very serious attacks on Russian uh, installations and in for and individuals in Ukraine.
2: Uh-huh. Well, my take is, yeah, we've been seeing it for a long time, and it's very concerning. I do think it's about, you know, we used to talk about Russia and the United States, the two empires trying to hold on. Well, it seems increasingly the United States power structure sees itself as the one empire, not holding holding on, but um, being sure to assert itself and maybe even grow. Um, or, or we hear, too, that it's the throes of a, it's, it's the death cries of a dying empire, but that's not where I see it at this point. Maybe we're going that way at some point. Right now I see the United States as escalating its um, hubris, and its intent to maintain a, a single uh, empire in the world. Right.
0: And it, it seems to like when you, when you when you broaden the conversation beyond military conflict in Ukraine, a lot of the same U.S. Milit- U.S. officials we talk about are more concerned about China's ascendancy in the economic oh, yeah. realm. You know, let me, speaking of economics, um, it seems to me that a big part of why this war is is happening, and and at uh, least at least in terms of U.S. promotion of a particular you know perspective on it, uh, and uh, and again, again the strategy that's being unfolded. We'll do everything we can to help Ukraine, um, whatever, you know, whatever it takes. Um, that that is a recipe for immense profits for the military-industrial no. complex. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, I, I don't know if any, either of you have, have had a chance to see what kind of impact this has already had in terms of military spending, in terms of uh, the, the uh, defense budget. But my my guess is this is going to be a huge boondoggle. Uh, oh. Well, maybe that's the wrong word. A huge, um, a huge. Uh, Opportunity for those corporations to get even more powerful and more, their hands on more and more tax dollars.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And it's pretty brazen now. I mean, the head of Raytheon, et cetera, was on TV recently talking about these weapons promoting democracy. I, I noticed he didn't talk about those same weapons going to Yemen and other places in the world promoting democracy. And <laughs> the absurdity of that. I mean, but these are things that you wouldn't have said 50 or 60 years ago, ever, that you were just, that the military industrial complex was just so crass. (laughs) And and now it's just right on the open. But the other part of this is who gets to sell gas to whom? So the other disappointing aspect of this is with the climate emergency. You know, the the, the most significant pro-life issues in the world today are overwhelmingly the climate emergency and nuclear weapons. Hmm. And you have a situation where the whole world should be moving to decarbonization, in part as a way to weaken the United Russia and the oligarchs, that we also have oligarchs in our country too, of course. Uh, and instead, you know, sort of like an alcoholic who who figured out that Walgreens doesn't sell alcohol anymore and we have to go somewhere else to find it, we gotta get it immediately. The United States is rushing around the world trying to get more carbon to, to you know, bring us closer to the end of organized human life. I mean, this is this is insanity. I mean, this is an addiction to carbon and the military-industrial complex, which now, as you know, I mean, you couldn't make this up in a science fiction movie. Now we have our ambassadors speaking to Venezuela and countries like Saudi Arabia, and you even have politicians right now condemning Saudi Arabia because they won't pump more oil. I mean, this is truly an alcoholic who cannot find the alcohol at Walgreens and has to go somewhere else. I mean, this is complete insanity. And, Mm -hmm. and, you know, if you, people who you can hear my voice, you know, if I don't know. (laughs) I mean, I'm just lost for words at what this is. This is the time for decarbonization Mm -hmm. and our political class, Republicans and Democrats should be saying, this is the time for decarbonization, period. Mm -hmm. I mean, isn't that something this conflict
0: could have taught us? Right. And how does that connect with uh, the importance of, uh, of demilitarization of, creating opportunities and strategies for diplomacy for for um, you know for uh, for you know for working through an agency like the United Nations to try to resolve conflicts uh, you know Absolutely. collectively uh, Kathleen you want to weigh in on Absolutely. this
2: well I guess the one thing I would say is I think it just struck me that this is really a great question to take to all the candidates because I was reading a study out of of uh, Uh, A European study, anyways, talking about what hypocrisy is coming from the United States as the United States officials talk about climate change and the danger, while at the same time, it's the United States military that is the largest um, uh, user of carbon in the world, leaving the greatest carbon footprint around the world. based on all the, um, I mean, we have 700 military bases, so... Even developing them and taking down trees, and then of course bringing weapons across those areas, uh, and then of course all the military action. So I think that would be a really good question. I again, I heard one of the candidates speak about the dangers of um, climate change, but never reference. The U.S. military role in that, and I think that's something to be deeply explored and and
0: confronting them with. So let, let me let me kind of wrap up this conversation with an important question, and it may take a little bit of time for us to chew on it, and that's fine. But what do we do? We, we you know our, our our viewpoints on the Ukraine conflict are not in sync with the, those of the mainstream media, with our our, our elected officials, for the most part. Um, What do we do? How do we respond to Vladimir Putin in Ukraine? I mean, I I, I guess I get it. We can say, you know, NATO never should have expanded. That's water over the dam at this point. How do we respond right now, Jeffrey?
1: I, I would say we should give money to the Doctors Without Borders, the many organizations that are helping Ukrainians. And the role of the United Nations has been extraordinary. I mean, the the UN Refugee Service, what they've done is is a huge accomplishment for the United Nations system to to help so many Ukrainians get to safety. We need to push our leaders to say that we have to work in the best interest of the people of Ukraine. And that would mean ceasefire, diplomacy now, innovative thinking rather than innov escalation. But we, you know, we, we can
0: call for a ceasefire and Vladimir Putin could say, huh, whatever and keep going.
1: Yeah, of course. But we still have to do that because we don't have any alternative. It will either be total defeat for Ukraine or total defeat for Russia. And I think most people, if they would bet, that's how wars end. I think most people would say that it's more likely that it would be total defeat for Ukraine than it would be for Russia. And so we have no choice but negotiation, and diplomacy. Um, But yeah, I mean, we we have to also push our leaders for the decarbonization of everything. Somehow we have to move away from a permanent war economy, perpetual state of war. There's just much bigger issues.
0: Same question, Kathleen. How do we resolve the conflict in Ukraine? What do we do? If we we were pulling the levers right now, what would we do?
2: Right. Um, Well, I think the idea of calling for a ceasefire, even, and as you say, Putin might say no. Well, has the United States said yes. What power does the United States have to move in that direction? Um, is continuing to arm Ukraine with, uh, more deadly and more deadly weapons. Is that the way to get to a ceasefire? Um, so I would think that's part of it is, is, calling, you know, having our public care and calling on the United States government to push for a ceasefire. But I mean, now, I also think, and again, this is because of the work I do primarily, I think it's so important to get the voices of the public engaged, and they're not. I mean, they are they have been in the sense of, uh, yay, uh, United States or yay, Ukraine. But so one of the things we keep doing is education forms, help people do letters to the editor, do op-eds, um, but get the public knowledgeable. I mean, it's really hard to um, overcome the media. But so, you so, know, so is little the, by little, inch by inch, we get some education. So, out. So, so, is there any
0: is there any kind of gray area there where I mean, we talk about you know making the Ukrainian people the priority and um, <clears throat> doing what we can to help them diplomatically. But what if the Ukrainian people and their leader are saying we need more arms? How do we? Mm-hmm. Is there is there any I mean, and I know I'm talking to two, you know, uh, I mean, the Catholic Peace Ministry, right? But um, is there any is there any place in that in that request where the U.S. should uh, respond by saying, okay, we'll help you with this or this, in some limited capacity, or is that just something that should be off the table?
1: Well, I mean, I think I mean it's 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 too late for that discussion to some extent because we've already gone down, yeah. you know, we've already gone down this. I mean, if we even talked about the things that helped in part to precipitate this, you know, um, provocative flights along the Black Sea, the British naval destroyer that was pushed out of the Black Sea about six months before the invasion, uh, Turkey selling drones to Russia. And what I think about is, if you think about Russia, Russia's going to not stop this war until they find those drones. So I would just raise the question, is it possible that Russia doesn't end the war until they what they say demilitarize, which means capture the weapons that have been given to Ukraine. And I'm not sure that's the best.
0: Hmm.
1: We don't have any good alternatives here.
0: Kathleen, uh, 30 seconds, your last <laughs> response. You get the last word.
2: Yeah, is there, the question was, is there some middle ground? Yeah, the concern is, I mean, there isn't a the middle ground because we've already sent as many weapons as right. uh as possible to this point, but the call is not about diplomacy. The call is about more weapons. The United States is clearly staking its ground on conquering or pushing back is um, Russia enough to pull an end to the war yeah. with Ukraine winning. I, I until the United States starts being serious about calling for some kind of diplomacy. Uh, you know, and it can't be, we'll give you a little more because we've already given so much. Right. And we're just continuing down
0: that path folks um, we, folks we've been talking with uh, kathleen McQuillan. Uh, thanks for joining us kathleen she's the uh, director of the catholic peace ministry uh, we've also been talking with jeffrey weiss he's a professor at des moines area community college uh, jeffrey kathleen thank you so much for joining us
2: thanks ad yeah thank you ad. it was good to be with you thank and
0: you when we thank come you. back folks got again a short break here uh, kathy burns with birds and bees urban farms going to join me for our Weekly farm and food segment. This week we're going to be discussing, we're going to be answering your May Garden QA. Gateway Marketing Cafe is Des Moines' locally owned grocery and specialty food store. With over 5,000 items to choose from, you can order groceries online and the Gateway team will bring them to you curbside. It's a convenient way to shop from anywhere and save time. Gateway's Cafe is open for dine in, carry out, and delivery service seven days a week with catering and floral services also available. Visit gatewaymarket.com for more details. Gateway Market, good food, great community. Architecture by Synthesis provides planning, design, and design build services for high-performance, low-maintenance, affordable homes and buildings. Owner Mark Clipsham is adamantly and actively committed to supporting the mission of the Fallon Forum and community radio stations. Mark knows we must all live and work with the goal of building better health for both people and planet. And he works to implement that vision through his stewardship of Architecture by Synthesis. You can learn more at architecturebysynthesis.com.
3: At Story County Veterinary Clinic, Dr. Kim Holding has over 30 years of experience working with all creatures great and small. Cat, dog, horse, cow, elephant, well, if you've got a pet elephant, you may be in trouble. Kim's clients stick with her year after year because they know she'll do right by them and their pets and farm animals. So give Kim a shout to keep your animals happy and healthy. Call 515-232-8766. That's 232-8766.
0: Welcome back to the Fallon Forum. Remember, you can support this alternative to the shock jocks by becoming a monthly donor. Or if you own a small business or run a nonprofit, consider becoming a sponsor of this program. And speaking to sponsors, thanks to Story County Veterinary Clinic, where Dr. Kim Holding has cared for all creatures, great and small, for over 30 years. Learn more at Story County Veterinary Clinic's Facebook page. Hey, Kathy Burns with Birds and Bees Urban Farm. Joining me now in the studio, for our farm and food segment, and it looks like uh, we've got a we've seen a bunch of questions on you know garden questions relevant to May gardening, specifically in the Upper Midwest. Although these may be relevant to you wherever you live, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. some are. So, first question, Kathy. Uh, this person writes: We built a garden bed last year, and the contractor just filled it with the dirt that came from digging around. Will this work to grow anything? And there's a photo with that uh, that question of a garden bed filled with construction-type dirt, rocks, and weeds.
3: <laughs> well, and, and if you're new to gardening, that's, that's a good question to ask. You need to know that. You need not to let your contractor fill your garden bed with the construction soil. In other words, dirt.
0: Well, clay probably, Clay right? <laughs> and dirt and
3: all kinds of things. It's too <clears throat> bad that the contractor did that. Ed, um, you were so surprised by this question, too, that, that you, you chuckled just now. So, <laughs> well, um, yeah, it's,
0: if you, and I, it's I, true. Hey, I Guilty, right? My very, very first year, and this is after living in Ireland, my first year growing food in Iowa, this would be 1987, planted a big patch of potatoes in solid clay. Yes, yes. Zero potatoes. I mean, the, wow. the plants sprouted, but there were zero tubers.
3: Well, if that person wants to have any chance of using it. <clears throat> Any of that soil, it will take years to regenerate by sifting the soil. You'll have to build yourself a little soil sifter. you have to pull out all the rocks. You're going to have to amend it with a lot of compost, a lot of manure. Um, Best to dig all that soil out, I think, (laughs) and get something good to start with, some real soil.
0: So, hey, uh, a question about seedlings. This one's from, um, dated May 7th. Did I start my tomatoes too late? And there's a photo of uh, tiny little seedlings with about, you know, just the two seed leaves. Two tiny leaves. Yeah. The answer is yes. (laughs) You started them too too late. late. I'm sorry. Buy some plants instead. (laughs) Good
3: for you for starting your seeds. Two Uh, months earlier next time. Get get them going earlier and um, they'll be fine. But, yeah, um, lots of places have seeds and seedlings for sale right now.
0: Well, this is a photograph of a three-inch tall plant. That's leaning sideways. Um,
3: It drank too much. Well, he says, says, (laughs) "Any,
0: any idea on how to get this little fella to straighten back up? I added more dirt, but it only made it a little better.
3: And, so, and that was a Brussels sprout. Yeah, that was a Brussels sprout picture. So you know they do kind of lean. They get a little bit of a, a curve in their stem yeah. sometimes naturally. And if it's a Brussels sprout and it's leaning, it's probably going to be okay. Okay, um, you can add more dirt, straighten it up a little bit. But if your tomato, which we just mm. talked about tomatoes, is leaning, you know that's not as good. Or some of the other ones, if your mm. cabbages. Cabbage just lean a little bit too. Brassica's lean a little bit. Yeah,
0: but. but you're right. I mean, Brussels sprouts probably more so, I think. Mm-hmm. Okay, so a hardening off question. Basically, just how do you harden off tomatoes?
3: Um, an hour a day of exercise.
0: <laughs> yeah, the first
3: day, and just like, just like when we're trying to get in physical shape ourselves, you don't start it all at once. So, about an hour a day out in the sun, some moderate sun and a little breeze. And then bring them into the shade or into the house, and then the next day, two hours, and the next day, three hours, and uh, so forth, until they hit what about seven hours of yeah. good uh, outside time. And that may
0: take more than a week.
3: It may, you know, you it know. may. But that helps their their um, stems and their stalks strengthen. They get they get uh, strengthen their fibers by resisting the wind, and it helps their leaves not get oh my goshness with the sun on them and burn them.
0: So related to that, here's a question about transplanting. Uh, What are your thoughts on transplanting into the garden this week with the drastic temperature increase? Uh, And again, we're looking at upper 80s and maybe low 90s here in central Iowa. Too hot to transplant?
3: You can do it now if you're ready to water them. Religiously okay. until the heat spell dissipates, and then uh, otherwise, they're, you're okay to wait a little bit longer, unless it's brassicas, you want to get those out. Well,
0: and, and that's the next question is kind of the opposite it's about those cold weather crops uh, mm-hmm. and bolting. Uh, this question is with hot weather here, do I need to worry about my cold hardy plants bolting? I got peas, kohlrabi, lettuce, carrots. And radishes in right now?
3: I would say, unless they have a whole lot of foliage, they're not going to start bolting yet. They need a good supply of foliage to bolt. What do you think, Ed?
0: Um, well, the hot weather does cause. I mean, peas, no, that's no worry there at all. I'm not familiar with kohlrabi. Carrots, carrots will love it. Uh, lettuce, radishes, maybe. You know, lettuce, radishes, arugula, I think that stuff might bolt. Um, but if they're already
3: in, there's not much you can do. Yeah. You could you could just pick off those seed heads when you see them start.
0: It is too late to plant those kinds of salad crops. Mm-hmm. I mean, you can still plant carrots, of course. Um, but peas, lettuce, radishes, arugula. Yeah, I mean, at this point, wait till August. <laughs> plant the first week of August for a fall crop.
3: I think some peas could still go in because we're going to have a cold really? spill no. after this couple of days. So no, we're maybe. a little split on that. Yeah,
0: that means I'm wrong, right?
3: That means we have different opinions. Oh, okay.
0: (laughs) Uh, Speaking of peas, somebody says I planted peas on April 11 and still haven't seen anything sprout. And this is um, almost a month later. Should I assume there was a problem and that I need to replant?
3: I I would dig a little bit under the dirt and see where one of those peas is, see if it's starting to sprout. If you've got a sprout there, you're going to get them all come up. Otherwise, if you can't find any peas at all, yeah. and or if you find just a dead pea, then you've got to replant now.
0: We had some problems with, uh, with, with plants that, um, that- we we planted seeds and then it got really it, it stayed really cold mm-hmm. and and the germination didn't happen for about a month so mm-hmm. hey one last quick question okay. my first year growing garlic should i keep mulching with compost or should i keep the soil level just above the bulbs
3: they don't need to keep mulching now they can they can uh, yeah. just keep them level and the up. bulbs
0: need to be underground
3: i hope the bulbs yeah. are, i saw the picture it looked like nice plants i assume the bulbs Let's are keep those bulbs, bulbs covered
0: Hey, Kathy, thanks for joining us, folks. We've been talking with Kathy Burns of Birds and Bees Urban Farm. Thanks also to Jeffrey Wise and Kathleen McQuillan for joining us today. And thanks to our production team of Sherry Herdina, Forrest Determan, Charles Goldman, Kathy, and myself, Ed Fallon. Thanks to our local small business partners, including Gateway Marketing Café, Architecture by Synthesis, Story County Veterinary Clinic, Western Optometry and Dr. David Drake Family Psychiatry. Remember, your support for this program matters a lot. Go to the Fallon Forum website to learn more about how you can make a difference. Thanks again, and we will be back next week with another hour of cutting-edge talk radio.